This is Dr. Liz Wayne. And this is Dr. Zain Yao. And you're listening to another session of the PhD This Podcast. And we're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. Uh, a divide that will be sort of the feature of today's episode. Um, basically, yesterday, I sent Liz this frantic message because the <laughs> National Endowment for the Humanities just released their appropriations report that put together the budget that if the if Congress approves the current budget, basically, this is a budget that would have to confirm that the NEH is going to shut down in 2018, and that closure is going to start in October of this year. And mm-hmm. I was telling Liz, like, the, the damage that this would have to the humanities, um, to not just to ac- academics, but beyond the ivory tower, to, like, to culture, um, the arts, archives, museums, uh, teaching at all different levels would just be so catastrophic. And Liz was like, wait a second, this would be a really great, we should do it for this week's episode. <laughs> do it for the pod. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is going to be, um, all Dr. Zain Yao here, um, with inputs from me, but only supporting inputs. Yeah. And so for our listeners, Um, Let's just make a story here. So what is the NEH? Mm -hmm. So the NEH is the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, It's an incredibly important institution, and I'm just going to bring up some of the talking points for people who are less familiar with it. So the the mentality behind slashing the NEH, among other institutions like the National Endowment for the Arts, for example, usually has to do with like this idea behind cost cutting. But with the actual numbers that we see, uh, the NEH currently operates on 100, 147.8 million per year, which represents 0.006% of the federal budget. Now with that money, the NEH has been matching grants over the last 50 years, generating more than 4 billion in non-federal donations to humanities projects and institutions. This has mean investments in museums and historic sites that attract cultural heritage tourism and bolster local economies. And I think what's also important to note is the way that this is something that impacts every district, every every state. Uh, it, it impacts demographics that people don't think about or that has been, have been underserved, such as veterans, uh, of course, communities of color, uh, minority serving institutions, community colleges. This is also, the NEH has also had bipartisan support ever since its founding. So these are just mm-hmm. sort of like the general things. And I'm sure that uh, any one of you may already know that, or it's like, these are really accessible um, points that we can bring about the NEH. But with the story today, we sort of wanted to, to bring you uh, a little bit more insights into what the NEH does in terms of impacting individual lives and careers. So what I did is I put out a call on our social media and my personal social media, as well as a call out to uh, the listserv for my pro- professional field, which is the field of 19th century Americanists, just calling on anyone to write to me with a brief statement if they've received NEH uh, funding, what their project was and what type of impact it had. And I'm really happy to say that we ended up getting responses from people from every stage of their academic careers, people who have just graduated, people who are adjuncts, to people who are full professors. Um, there is going to be sort of a bias in terms of the examples here because, again, my field is um, uh, early in 19th century American literature. 
but I hope that it helps to illustrate to our listeners who may be, you know, of course, non-specialists in the field, non-humanities people, or even non-academics all, the kind of in, the importance that this institution has and how much will be lost um, if it gets cut. Okay. Yeah. So the NEH, National Endowment, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Endowment for the Humanities, and it not only personally funds the work of many of my friends, but it funds, it supports just about everything that we might even think about. It is so involved in our culture that we don't even think about it, and we don't realize what we're actually about to miss. And this could be the last year that it's here. Is this what you're telling me? Yeah, which is absolutely terrifying. Um, like I had one person reach out to me who has a fellowship this year. And she said that she's sort of terrified to think about the fact that she could be the very last uh, generation of NEH fellows when it's been so important to people's careers. It, what I found really inspiring with some of the stories that I heard about, like some people talked about how the NEH funding that they got was instrumental for them to lead to full, pro not just full professorships, but do important work on the field that went beyond their individual careers. Like, for example, um, we had uh, Lucinda Damenbach, who works on this one author, Catherine Maria Sedgwick, who's a lesser known writer now, but she was really famous in her day. And what was really important, she is an early 19th century American writer who mm -hmm. was pre-feminist in many ways. And also she was known for uh, much more sympathetic depictions of Native Americans that gave them a agency in a way that they uh, weren't given voice to in a lot of American literature at the time. So incredibly important. Um, and she was able to found a whole academic society on that, which has led to outreach um, to teaching, not just within higher education, but to high schools, for example. Uh, wow, that's that's impressive. Yeah, and I think what's also that's cool amazing. is like the size of some of these projects. So. Um, Sandra Petro Petrolionis, um, for example, she talked about her book project, which had, uh, which ended up employing two dozen undergrads, which gave them experience with digital work, editorial work. Um, this ended up also led to her running programs to teach uh, the topics in her area and allowing 25 teachers, which included people who are both community college and adjunct teachers, uh, to how to teach that material. And of course, if you actually take just the 25 teachers and you take take into consideration the sheer number of students that they teach on average per year, the overall impact can lead up to about 10,000 people, um, mm -hmm. uh, students uh, impacted by that. So I, I found it really inspiring to hear the, the way that this sort of reverberates. And I think what I continually heard from so many people, even at early stages in the profession, is that mm -hmm. the value that they got out of their NEH grants weren't just about their specific projects and furthering their careers, but it was also about what can they bring to their graduate students and their undergrads in terms of being able to mentor them better, teach them how to use resources better, write grants better. Uh, this is all like part of this holistic process that uh, it's not just about individuals profiting, but it's also about fostering communities of research um, and networking. There's quite a, quite a few people who talked about these amazing public uh, free projects that they're working on to make uh, text freely available to people. So one example 
I got from Kevin Modestito was this grant that was given to Howard that was particularly about giving attention to archives of black writers and scholars, that there's so much work that is so important that is not digitized. So for example, a, a sad case of uh, racism in my own profession, for example, I've talked a lot about the Modern Language Association, which is of course the central association for anyone who studies literature. For a long time, it basically did, I, did not represent black scholars at all. So black scholars had to go off and make their own equivalent at MLA, which is called the College Language Association. Mm. Um, and even though those things have changed, like the CLA is still a really important influence. I have a lot of friends who say that the conference is absolutely amazing. And they have their own journal, which is, of course, very important in the field of literature, especially African-American literary studies. But that journal is not digitized at all. And even when I was doing my own research, I'd, I would come across I attempt to get articles and I'd be like, wow, I just don't have access to these. And I didn't realize that it had to go to this problem of uh, structural and institutional racism. And so this NEH project is about giving access uh, to these really important archives uh, of black scholars and black uh, voices to also do something that talk about some uh, something similar that's more specific about how these resources impact specific communities. Um, I had an, another person that I know uh, Matthew uh, Toich, who talked about how he he's in Louisiana right now, and he was working for the Ernest J. Gaines Center, who was a, a very accomplished 20th century African-American writer. And what they do at the Gaines Center doesn't just have to do with uh, promoting Gaines's work in his archive, although that's really important. It's also really a lot about community out, outreach uh, to specifically about race and history in Louisiana, particularly rural Louisiana. So this way that like very specifically uh, the local areas being enriched by having access to these NEH institutions. Oh, sorry, that was a whole, a whole lot at once. Uh, just... Yeah, so why don't we, um, it, it we're kind of already doing all of this, but let's try to see if we can answer this question of who benefits from the NEH? Who really benefits? So we've talked a little bit about Let's talk about maybe separate it. So one, like the lives of the researchers, but also what does American society, because we're talking about an American grant, really benefit from having something like the NEH exist? Mm -hmm. So I think that like I could answer it in very broad strokes, which of course has to do with enriching and supporting the cultural, artistic, ethical, historical understanding of the U.S. broadly. Um, but I also think that, uh, thankfully, because so many people responded to me in such a short mm -hmm. time, and like, this is, again, I put this out this call and people responded within less than 24 hours. Uh, some examples I want to draw on. Um, I had a friend at Hunter College who said how the director of our Asian American Studies program received NEH grants that had to do with uh, teaching how K through 12 teachers, as well as uh, community uh, faculty across community colleges can teach Asian American film and literature. And of course, a topic that we've had on our podcast, for example, has been sort of the lack of representation of Asian American uh, creatives and actors in, in society. And so that's one way that it's really addressing a deficiency. Um, for instance, I think that it also helps us have broader understanding of things that we sort of take for granted. So uh, one very senior scholar in my field, Ellen Gruber Garvey, just wrote this book that's about scrapbooks. 
And so, interesting. I yeah, so scrapbooks, of course, right now are very popular. But the thing is, they actually were really important in the 19th century. Like politicians, famous writers actually use scrapbooks. And so her work was actually about... Uh, Why this... they use scrapbooks, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so she, I, based off of her work, it sort of had to do with... <laughs> <laughs> the importance yeah, I of, get it, I get yeah, it. of like sort of a material memory. It's about these hidden personal archives about how people uh, related to the objects around them. And the impact of her work has been that, uh, and impact of many others, and has been that a lot of mainstream publications pick this up and also disseminate it. So even though this is an academic book published by an academic press, um, she mentioned that, mm-hmm. like, for example, the Smithsonian covered it. I believe she had an interview on CBS. Uh, there's quite a few uh, people who wrote to me that talked about how their books, for example, got covered by the New York Times. Uh, a lot of the, what we say with, uh, for the general reading public. So this way that uh, we all sort of end up benefiting and have, have our lives enriched by it. What I also thought was sort of funny, so scrapbooks might be sort of an, a seemingly an unusual topic, but there's quite a few people working on early 19th century American literature who helped to extend how we think about media studies and digital media, because mm-hmm. it's sort of easy to think about it being a very contemporary, very, very modern phenomenon. But with some of my friends working on issues like uh, print culture, if you really think about how the rise of print in the 19th century with the uh, the printing press bec- and becoming that much more popular, but also accessible, cheaper, there was an unprecedented boom in terms of, of media, like maybe the way that we complain about now our Facebook feeds or social media getting filled up. Likewise, like so many more people are able to publish magazines, write stories, things like that. And their work helps us to sort of contextualize uh, this phenomenon that we're living in with right now, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is really exciting. Let's see. What I think is also important to note uh, that my friend John Sinchin pointed out, among many other things, is that the comment... It may be said that, okay, you have the NEH, but aren't there other a lot of other institutions that give out grants? And he pointed out that often applying for the NEH and getting NEH mon- money is needed to leverage these private grants. Uh, and it's not just through the, the NEH, but for example, I have a friend who is not an Americanist, so a little bit more variety, uh, Rose Casey, who is works on uh, South African apartheid. And she talked about how the NEH, because it funnels money, not... Uh, through so many archives, but also so many different institutions. She got a grant through her institution, uh, West Virginia, and it's gonna be instrumental for her work on the writing about South African apartheid, that often the way that it tends to be depicted is that it's all about all these heroic men, but she's paying attention to the way that so many women's voices, particularly women of color's voices, have been erased, and what does it mean to sort of draw attention to, to these women, uh, especially since we can think about even now the voices of women in politics and activism often tend to be overlooked. Uh, so it's sort of this ongoing problem. And I think that she does really exciting work uh, that sort of shows how these ideas are connected uh, beyond the U.S. Uh, sorry, I have to take a drink of water. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally, it's fine. It's... um becoming clear that we have a lot to lose by losing the NEH. And I I also wanted to point out, um, because you kind of mentioned getting private funding versus government funding and wondering, well, can't we get this done through other grants? And I also know that 
one of the government's initiatives currently, um, sorry, directives is, well, let's just have this go back to private funding. Mm -hmm. But the whole point of having the government fund this kind of research is that it really gets to reflect the people, you. Mm -hmm. When a private institution or a private philanthropist wants to fund research, they're going to they're only going to fund what they want to fund and that narrows what we get to study it narrows whose voices get get heard and there's a reason why you want the government to do that the government will actually distribute the knowledge and the funding in an equitable equitable fair way and if we let private institutions do everything and if you let specific foundations do it you know, you're going to look 20 years down the line and go, how come we didn't record any of this? Mm-hmm. And it's because no one thought it was going to be useful. Mm-hmm. And I think... And uh, that's what the science is too, so... Yeah, and I think that... So, also in the humanities, sometimes people think that our work might be less rigorous. And uh, my friend John talked about how he was recently uh, one of the reviewers that helped to vet the NEH. And so he told me a little bit about how rigorous this process is. It, tell us, yeah. tell us. So grants go through really extensive peer reviews. And so he was talking about uh, the digital humanities. He was on a panel of five scholars. They all separately read, read and rated um, their proposals, met in a Skype conference to debate the merits of each, mm-hmm. rated them a second time. Then after that, an NEH program officer presents the highest rated proposals to the National Humanities Council, which is um, appointed by the President of the United States and congressionally approved, who then debates them again. And then grants are made. So this multi-step process with experts of the field, as well as publicly elected officials and approved people. And as my friend John points out, he says, if you were a cynic, you might point out that NEH grant proposals get several more readings and more debate than, say, ma- major legislation on health care that affects of the U.S. <laughs> oh. economy. So nice burn, John. I had to get that in verbatim. Yeah. Actually, that's a valid point. Thinking about the last um, Trump health care and I forget the formal name of it. I kind of hate calling it Trump care. Yeah. But the last thing that, I mean, I also hate calling Obamacare, American Affordable Care Act. Yes. Anyway, yes, yes. Um, what I thought was really interesting is they would ask the politicians, did they read it? And they would always say, uh, um, <laughs> my staffer did. You know, someone else did, but they never did. But with these grants that get funded by your government, it gets peer reviewed by people who are doing the work across the country and it's highly selective and currently the best system that we have for making sure that things are done in a fair way Mm -hmm. although there are issues with peer review but yeah but like this is sort of the best I guess the best we got which is often uh, which is ourselves yes which is very sort of (laughs) but yeah, I was going to, uh, sorry, I've just so many points and I'm also I realize I'm very excited and apologies to our listeners that I might be speaking even more quickly than usual because I'm excited and I'm, I know that's usually a problem that I have. Um, I want to also mention that what's also been important, like, so I, I sort of mentioned that we've been hearing from people at all different stages of their academic careers, but what's also important is like it allows for research opportunities to, for again, for people that are not just at R1 institutions, but say are at teaching intensive institutions where you're teaching four, four loads or even possibly more, 
where it could be a real struggle to, to do research. And as much as I'm, those people who are at teaching intensive institutions are there because they love teaching, research, of course, enhances teaching. And so it's only through something like the NEH are, that they're able to ex, uh, explore new areas of knowledge, not just for themselves and for a scholarly communities, but to bring that knowledge back to their students and then also to uh, broader communities as well. Mm. So it ties back into the teaching, the mm -hmm. very things that people go to college for and the courses they take and the things that you remember. I bet that even for the non-academic people, the people who have left their last college class was a decade or so ago, they'll always be able to tell you about that one class that they had, right? Mm -hmm. This one thing that they studied and it's going to be something they remembered fondly, some lesson they learned. And that is in small part, if not all because of funding from the NEH or places like this. Yeah, so um, another fantastic example I wanted to bring up since, well, a cluster of examples. So as our listeners know, our tagline includes the fact that we bridge the STEM humanities divide. And what has been fantastic mm -hmm. with the, quite a few of the proposals, well, about the projects that I heard back from people is exactly this, uh, uh, part of our, I guess, uh, oh, good God, I'm just losing my, my, langu my language just because I'm so excited, uh, that they are doing that exact work themselves as well. So, for, for example, I got to hear from someone else, also from West Virginia, who was talking about her research that specifically had to do with healthcare in, in West Virginia, in underserved populations, and about um, opioid addiction, um, prescription medication, uh, questions of non-adherence, type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. and so forth. And so this type of work that she's doing that has to do with analyzing uh, non-compliance in health and medicine um, allows us to really understand better what this means culturally and how and historically, and what it might mean to craft clearer communication and how to help people be compliant. Um, and so as she gave me some statistics, um, she points out that one in five of the 39.5 million Medicare recipients discard, discharged from acute care facilities each year is readmitted within 30 days of discharge. And this is estimated oh, to cost wow. the U.S. government more than $2.6 billion a year. Uh, the two factors most cited as contributing to excessive rehospitalization are poor communication and poor coordination during care transitions. And mm. so her work about language and rhetoric uh, is deeply tied to this question of how do you improve these outcomes, improve people's lives and healthcare ends um, for those who care more about the bottom line. It, it also say, uh, is about using money more effectively. Right. The bottom line is that we're all people and communication matters. Mm -hmm. And somehow we don't think it matters in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? And yes. Yeah, in really interesting ways, again, impacting No one should be taught it, but everyone should know it and use it. Mm -hmm. Also, what I thought was cool, um, quite a few people also working on history of science projects. For example, I just got uh, a very recent email from Michelle Navakis, sorry if I mispronounced your name, uh, where she's the one who was uh, worried that she might be the final group of NEH fellows. And her project is about coral in early America. Mm -hmm. Which might sound like coral, coral, like the the marine uh, plants, uh, like organism. the reef, yes. coral reef. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's really <laughs> fascinating. So it's it's actually about thinking about what is the history of a field like marine biology, and what did it mean for 
uh, Europeans and the development of American culture that was coextensive with the dis uh, discovery of coral and how did it affect not just researching on coral, but thinking about, say, like science, how did, um, how did it affect culture? Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting way that like attending to not just his specific histories of science, but also material histories can teach us so much about the present. Uh, from one of our previous PhDivas interviewees, Michelle Tong, she let us know how Earlham mm -hmm. College got an NEH grant to support the creation of a medical humanities program at Earlham, which I think is really awesome. For our listeners who might be less familiar, the medical humanities is trying to address uh, an issue that we often hear now about how how doctors are educated, which has to do with, it's not just about learning about facts in the abstract, but like, what does it mean to understand how medicine works in society, the role of the doctor, the role of the patient? What does it mean to think about ethics, representation, so many other dimensions that um, the way that medicine as it is currently taught is sort of struggling to to humanize the profession more to address like structural problems um medical humanities is something that we're seeing growing a lot within our field that is trying to to reach out and and help these questions uh so i think it's really fascinating how so many different areas are impacted by the humanities again uh because Again, I work, I'm an Americanist. A lot of these examples are drawn from my field, but there's also like NEH grants affect people, like people doing studies on music, history, uh, classics, linguistics. Like there's just so many different fields. I also have to say that I was really excited to get responses from two scholars whose work has really inspired my own. Uh, so, uh, like who? Yeah. Or what? So. On, I heard from Edley Wong, who just wrote an amazing book about the comparative racialization of Asian Americans and African Americans that particularly have to do with the rise of the Chinese Exclusion Act and basically the creation of the modern immigration system in the U.S. And I believe the title of her book, um, since I don't have it on me, is uh, Racial Reconstruction, Chinese, like Chinese exclusion, black inclusion, and, um, and comparative race politics or something to that effect. And so she's doing really important work that is very near and dear to my heart in terms of thinking about comparative racialization and the way that it's not just about a, a black-white binary, but uh, what does it mean for, uh, for race at large, but also about, again, extending the conversation to issues that are very pertinent now that the Chinese Exclusion Act was really the beginning again of, of modern immigration so all these problems that we have right now with say the, the muslim ban or um other procedures that overwhelmingly impact people of color or uh, on other forms other minorities goes back to this period and her work really speaks to that i also got to hear from uh sean shu who likewise had neh funding to work on a book about how mark twain viewed comparative racialization, that he wrote these under-recognized works. Of course, when we think of Mark Twain, we think of, I guess, Huckleberry Finn, things that people had to read in high school or probably mandatory. But he actually wrote a lot about, say, like um, the early Chinese and tried to like contextualize what did it mean for um, Chinese Americans to emerge as a population just also in, in this post-slavery moment. And so both Edley Wong and um, Sean Su have been really instrumental to 
my thinking and the way that, say, in Asian American studies or someone who works in Asian American literature, we can't just look at our identities or our studies in the void, but we really owe it to ourselves ethically and historically to see um, the relationship that's often quite fraught, sometimes conflict, sometimes coalition with other peoples of color in the US. <sighs> Deep breath. <laughs> Take your breath. Get your breath, sign. Get your breath. <sighs> when you first heard the news, um, and and I, I should probably also preface this by saying that this has been a long time coming. Mm -hmm. Probably since the beginning of this administration, there were worries, and maybe around February there were some indications that things may be cut, but there were no, you know, actual conclusive things. It didn't happen yet, and we were hoping we wouldn't get to this point. Mm -hmm. And so when you found out that we actually got to this point, what was really going through your head? I felt physically sick. Like, like that's like, I, my gut reaction was literally a gut reaction that I just sort of, I felt incredibly devastated. Um, especially seeing like it wasn't just a press release but my friends started sharing specifically that NEH appropriations report that showing that they are having to prepare for the the possibility that Congress will pass this budget and this is really going to happen seeing in print these lines that like no grants will be funded after this particular date and knowing the sheer impact of that was just was absolutely horrifying We've talked so much on this podcast about how precarious academia is, and it just seems like this other massive blow that won't just impact scholars at different stages of, the, of their careers, and not just junior scholars mm -hmm. like myself, but there's probably hundreds of archives that receive funding to do their work, museums doing outreach work, like to, to children, to K through 12 teachers, K through 12 education. And just imagine the, the sheer loss of that is just absolutely devastating. And I think that it can't really be quantified um, what sort of impoverishment this would have on the life of, of the United States and like, of course, all the rest of the world because I'm a non-US citizen. It would just sort of reverberate outwards. Um, so on the one hand, and we'll be linking to this in the podcast description, the National Humanities Alliance has this fantastic sheet of talking points that gives concrete figures, which I've, I cited earl earlier, about the numbers, the, the, in terms of money, uh, people help. Right, so what helps. actions can people take yeah. to convince Congress not to do this? <laughs> so we'll be linking to the National Humanities Alliance so to take action, they, of course, suggest that they contact Congress and they have an action center that includes um, a lot of information and on how you can do that and as, as simply as possible. You can sign up, you can schedule a meeting with your member of Congress, you can write an op-ed, you can recruit advocates. So please share um, anything with the hashtag sev, save the NEH or um, share any of these uh, links from the um, National Humanities Alliance. They also have like prepared a lot of graphics for you to use on social media because people know that you know um, info infographics are more digestible mm -hmm. often than, than a long op-ed. 
uh, they're making all this freely available. And of course, you could also donate to support them and also uh, join their organizational members. There's a whole list of things that can be done and we'll be linking to them. I also have to say what's sort of funny for me is even though I felt so emotionally devastated, I also felt incredibly helpless, which is probably why I also felt very affected because a lot of these actions do rely on the fact that you should be a US citizen or a US resident and I'm neither. So, you know, I, I have no right to contact any members. Like I don't have a member of Congress or a US representative mm -hmm. to contact. And so I was really happy that Liz suggested that we do this episode so that I can try to do something from Canada um, to help raise awareness and hopefully um, help leverage those of you who are US residents, are US citizens, to be able to do these actions that I cannot. Um, because I think, again, that so many of us will be impacted. Yes, <sighs> and not just the people who study humanities, but all of humanity. Yeah, See that's what a, I did there. Very well said, Liz. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh. trying. But a part of our podcast and our platform is bridging the same humanities divide and kind of been wanting to talk about this for a bit because not only because Zine is humanities and I am STEM, but we are fields and disciplines are genres. I'm not really sure what to call them at this broad of a level, mm -hmm. but they're both advocating for grant funding. And I think it's so easy for STEM people to think that they should not support the humanities or be afraid when um, the current administration wants to slash the NEH, the National Endowment of for Humanities, and it's not okay. Mm -hmm. And and interestingly enough, or it shouldn't be surprising, this stuff happens in the sciences all the time. And, you know, we actually did just get a $2 billion increase in the, humanity, the NIH funding, and that was celebrated, and that was very exciting. But then what does this mean for the NEH? What does this mean for supporting the other, the other fields? that are also suffering and also subject to the same kind of scrutiny mm -hmm. for work. Um, if people can remember how afraid they were not knowing whether funding would be continued, whether you'd have a job, whether your career was all this year, all the years you spent in your career, are you going to be able to have a future studying any of that? Um, people in humanities have the same fear mm -hmm. and we you just can't disregard that because they're too similar mm -hmm. yeah and i think one last thing i would think that assuming that we have people who listen to our podcast who are not in academia at all and who may feel completely disconnected from this because they may be saying well this grant doesn't fund my livelihood so why should i care and the the thing is you should care because this affects what your kids do at school it affects what they can do after school or it affects people's jobs and so even if you're not in the academy if you're not working at an academic institution 
the artists, the writers, the people who make life enjoyable and lively and help us learn more about ourselves, it all starts in programs like this. Mm -hmm. At some point in their life, they benefited from attending a program or a lesson or a museum or some sort of activity that was started in these very spaces from people who were trained to do this. And if you care about nothing else, care about your children. And if you don't have children, care about your niece or nephew or your play niece and nephew. But I, it, it matters. It really does. Mm-hmm. Done. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Back I think you, that you're yeah. much more eloquent than me. I think because I got so excited about the topic. I was slightly incoherent. So Zion is so for... excited, guys. She's got like pages and pages of stuff. And I was like, this is I know. her show. She's going to get the energy here. <laughs> But yeah, it, it really matters, guys yeah. and gals yes. and exes. Yes. <laughs> Wait, I didn't just put exes in a category what? by themselves. I meant exes as in like, <laughs> that's so funny. Our exes are not in the same category as <laughs> real human beings. This, this, this is like wow, a whole that's a different topic. podcast that, that episode that we still have not that's, done. That's an interesting slip, I got to say. And I, I'm sure that, <laughs> No, no, no. You know. Back to the NEAs, what really matters. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you for, for listening to us. I'm not sure what else I have to add. I hope that I, I would also add, especially for our non-humanities listeners, when the science march happened, there were so mm-hmm. many human, I, I was, I saw so many people who were in the humanities who were so proud to march for science. Um, Cause we, we realized that we we're in it together. And I realized that there, there's been nothing like a, uh, you know, a hashtag March for humanities that has, but but please pay attention to us too. And we're in it together. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds a little bit too pitiful. I should rethink that. But, but mm. I hope that the examples that I've given you show that humanities research touches on so many different aspects of your everyday life. Media, thinking about technology, thinking about science, thinking about healthcare, thinking about politics, thinking about, you know, being a person, being in, in the US what makes us human? What keeps yeah. us connected? Mm-hmm. What are the things that matter as we develop technology that changes the way we interact with each other? Mm-hmm. If nothing else, these types of studies help us think of things we weren't even thinking about to remind us of things, to keep us informed of our past so we don't make the same mistakes, so that we can make a better future, so that we can take joy as we learn and do things mm-hmm. it's it's everywhere and it's important and if we let this go i think we're going to regret it mm-hmm. and if we don't again our, our children will mm-hmm. our cities will yeah it sort of it sort of scares me just to think about what could it mean for a generation to grow up without all i mean of course, U.S. education. Are you is, crying? Is, no, no, no. I, I just. Oh no! Something eyes. was something was in her eyes. Sorry, symbolic, guys, but it wasn't a tear. Um, but what could that mean for a democratic society if people no longer have access to knowledge uh, from mm-hmm. any fields? Like, it's like um, imagine what it's like. It's not just about not having access to STEM knowledge, but also humanities knowledge. What type of society would you live in? How? What type of leaders would emerge? What type of policies mm-hmm. get made without knowing? Uh. And another spin on this is not only how do we get knowledge, but who do we trust? Mm-hmm. And 
what has always seemed to be true is when you look at po- level of public trust, politicians are always low, mm-hmm. um, and to some varying degrees, lawyers and doctors are low, but scientists, researchers, and I, I would imagine everyone who works in the academy tend to be pretty high. And the way I, I'd like to think about this is that in an era where it's hard to know who to trust, having an institution like the NAH at least provide you with background to say, I think this information might be valid and I don't think it's biased. Mm-hmm. And it gives you something to trust in this era where you don't know who to trust. If you let private institutions solely depict what information is valuable enough to be collected, that basically means they're going to be on your Twitter feed and checking who you liked or who you retweeted Mm -hmm. and it's going to become I have a million dollars I want someone to study why frogs are green and I want to make them pink (laughs) and which might be cool but then who do you trust Mm -hmm. and I I think that's an important factor and one of the reasons why I think it's important for me to start speaking up as a scientist because that's what I train for. That is my job to 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 care about how we answer questions and what the questions are and what confidence I can say certain things in. And if that is the role and humanities do a similar thing, what is right? Well, some well, philosophers ask to answer what's right or wrong, mm-hmm. right? But how do we parse through the information that we have? What's important and how do we know that it's important and why does it matter? Mm -hmm. And you want some people who answer that in an environment that is not influenced by capitalism, by someone getting paid Mm -hmm. to just take things from you. You want to have something to trust. And if you get rid of this, you can't trust. Yeah. Not not truly. And on the topic of trust. um, So, again, my friend John gave me lots of great information as well he has so many friends so I'm jealous. here's another great one for him he points out that the entire <laughs> house of representatives up for re-election in 2018 and trump mm. polls at 38 percent right now which is a historical low on the, on the other hand public libraries which are supported by the neh and nea um imls which i believe is the institute for museum library science all institutions set for closure were used by two-thirds of americans in 2014 according to pew research mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have a leader at polling at 38% versus uh, resources that are being used by two-thirds of Americans. And as my friend John says, we should all be asking Congress which is a better bet to take. Um, mm-hmm. 66% of Americans use public libraries or Trump's abysmal 38% support. Interesting. Interesting use of numbers, Zine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, John. But, you know, when I think about this, America really is a bunch of small towns. I mean, there's a few cities in there that skew things, but I think most people live in small towns. And in small towns, libraries are very important. Mm-hmm. They're second to probably churches, <laughs> places of gathering for information, for community building. You get your entertainment from libraries. Some people still use libraries for internet access, for oh, printing. Yes. Yeah, for and job searches. Guess what? Those are funded by the NEH. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, um, we, Zion and I are 
unabashedly biased here. We, we have an angle, which is that this is an inter important institution to maintain. And we hope that in this episode, you got to see both the passion that design delivered so carefully and see the stories that were laced throughout the, of the people studying things that were so important, such vital research. Zine, now that we close, why don't you tell everyone again um, what, where they can find information about the NEH and what they can do? Mm -hmm. So again, we'll, I'll be linking all this information in our episode description, but look either to the National Endowment of the Humanities website itself or to the National Humanities Alliance, which is specifically um, has, is gathering of resources on how you can help advocate, take action in so many different ways. Uh, there's please follow again the hashtag um, save um, NEH. Uh, just try to try to share share this as widely as you possibly can and uh, and yeah sorry I I suppose I'm a sort of at a loss for words precisely because the sheer the sheer scale of what would be lost sort of does leave me without words because it's something that's almost unfathomable for me to mm -hmm. think of. And so please don't let, don't let this future take place. Like this is exactly like, it also makes me think again, I guess power of literature. So many dystopias and science fiction and other things often have to do mm. with like this, this cutting of higher education, you know, the, the throttling of academic freedom and, and research and all these things. And it's like, wow, we could go down, we can, or, we can go down that dark timeline or, you know, from continue going dark, down that dark timeline. But please, we have to try and fight this now before it's too late. Uh, on that note, I'd also like to thank the so many scholars who reached out to us on social media or an email. I wasn't able to uh, talk about um, everyone's projects or mention everyone's names, but I will be listing every all those names in the description uh, so that people... Uh, can be properly cited and hopefully you'll get to hear more about their projects. Again, a lot of the projects that I talked about are pro probably published now in book form. There's digital resources online. There's uh, databases that are now up. Um, all these resources are now available. And I hope that you will check out the, the list of names of scholars who've been funded by the NH and hopefully get to learn a bit more about their work and how that might impact you. Yeah. So go to your local library, hug a librarian, hug a English major, um, hug a cat if they let you and you're not allergic. And thank you for listening. This is the PhD This Podcast. You can find us on all the socials. That would be Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter. Yes. Losing sight of what's happening. And of course, on SoundCloud. If you have a question or you want to send us more feedback, you can email us at phdivaspodcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Zion? Yeah. Th again, thank you to Liz, the STEM person, for thinking we should make this into an episode. And thank you to the <laughs> responses. Uh, this it's is very timely. Again, we just sort of tried to turn this around as quickly as possible. And hopefully, we did justice to it. <laughs>